Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Hello everyone, and welcome to Main Menu for the 27th of September, 2019. I am your co-host, Jason Castingway. This week, we continue with Part 2 of the Information Access Committee 411 meeting that took place at convention. You'll hear from Ray Campbell first, talking about accessibility and United Airlines, and then Marty Schultz from Blindfold Games, who gives us an update as well as some interesting educational developments on which he's working. Happy listening! Uh, When we were putting together this program, we said, well, you know, we can't really keep Ray shut up for the whole thing. (laughs) That's just not in the cards, so we better give him a role to play that we could all benefit from. And Ray's had an interesting path in recent years where he now works at United Airlines in the field of accessibility to the United Airlines uh, company. And as part of that, He's been on kind of both sides of the, so that website isn't accessible. Now what? Mm -hmm. Question. So I asked him if he would please do us the honor of doing just that. Tell us a bit about what, what that whole process is like and what you can do about it. And as he just told me, his presentation is short so that he can have a lot of discussion with people rather than talking at you. Thank you, Brian. And um, actually, um, just to um, Brian kind of summarize my path in the last few years where uh, I've been working with United Airlines. And I'm often put into a position where I have to say to somebody, well, this isn't accessible. And they're going, okay, so what does that mean? And so I got, and actually, though, the idea for this presentation came from my lovely wife, actually. And um, it came about because she was talking to me about a, uh, a, uh, a, a something that happened to her at work where the uh, place she works for had decided that they were going to set up an online portal for employees to go in and look at their pay stubs every couple of weeks when they get paid. So she was telling me about this, and she says, you know, I don't think it's accessible. And I said, well, you know, maybe we'll take a look at that one of these days. But I got to thinking, it's like, you know, how do you communicate when something, a website, an app, isn't accessible when maybe you're not a, you know, expert technology person? Maybe you're a beginner. Maybe you're somebody that, you know, knows enough about technology to do the things you need to do. And and you are uh, out there and you're trying to work. You're just using... Uh, apps and websites and things to get stuff done and you run into an issue and how do you as the maybe non-techie person communicate that to somebody who may be just as non-technical as you are the customer service person the um, the um, uh, person that's you know, taking the right you know the tech support uh, desk person who's writing the trouble ticket that goes to the real experts and that kind of thing 
you know, we've all been there with um, the uh, tech support people who say, well, what's the number on the uh, modem? And it says, and you say, okay, I, I'm blind. I can't tell. Well, I can't help you then, you know, because of that. So, so I thought what I would do this afternoon is maybe talk about, kind of in general terms, about some things that I think would be helpful for all of us to help each other, you know, basically understand how to report things that aren't accessible or that we think aren't accessible. Um, and, and actually, they, if, if, we, if we believe they're not accessible, they're not accessible to us because we have difficulty doing whatever it is we're doing. And, you know, it's kind of like beauty's in the eye of the beholder, so to speak. So the first thing I think is really important is be as clear as you possibly can be about what it is you can't do or are having difficulty doing. For example, um, maybe you have an app that, um, and, and I'll take this example of something I just reported to Clark and Claire recently regarding the Amtrak app. And that was that um, I was, um, so you're, you go into this app, you, 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 you tap on a box to, a double tap on a text box to enter some information and the box never opens. It never says, is editing, if you're using iOS, for example. And so how do you communicate that to someone? Well, basically what you would want to say in, in, in those kinds of cases is that, hey, you know, I tried to enter my train number to see what train status was. I couldn't enter that information because I, I use the voiceover screen reader, and when I double tap, which is how I make it so I can type information into boxes, the box never, it never, I never, the on-screen keyboard never popped up so I could type in that information. And so that would be one thing, and therefore you say, you know, therefore I can't check train status with your app. I have to call on the telephone or do some other way, if you're, say, using the Amtrak site. So make it clear what you can't do, and if you can, as best as possible, explain why you can't do it. Uh, another part of that that I think is really helpful, if you're using a screen reader, if you can, uh, through uh, just you know, remembering what, it's, what was said and writing it down in your report, if you're sending in a, a written a tech support uh, complaint of some sort, or if you can uh, pick up, you know, use NVDA Speech Viewer or JAWS Speech History, uh, say if you're on the PC, uh, to pick up what is being said. Uh, that basically, if you can communicate to somebody, hey, this is what my screen reader says when I come to this button, and it doesn't make any sense to me. It's you know, and basically say if it's saying file slash file slash uh, checkout chkout.jpg. That doesn't make sense to a lot of people. And if you can communicate that to the person you're writing to or or talking to, then you can say and you can say to them, hey, look, you know, this wouldn't make any sense to you. It doesn't make any sense to me. It, it needs to be a more clear description of what that control does. And so if you can communicate that, that's good too. Um, if you can also explain, um, and, and, I say get, and I say get real specific, because if you can say, well, you know, hey, um, I can, uh, for example, uh, if I'm using an app, you know, maybe something works on the keyboard but I'm not always going to have my keyboard with me. So, um, you know, when I do, when I, 
when I do this thing using an Apple wireless keyboard, and people can relate to that because a lot of sighted people have them too, and uh, that you can say, um, when I use the screen on my phone, it doesn't work, but when I use the keyboard, it does, or maybe vice versa. If you can be clear about that, that's, uh, that's possibility. Um, another thing, too, that I would do is sometimes one of the things you'll run into, especially on, um, not as much anymore, but there may be some out there, some sites where you've got, all, you can fill in all the form fields, but then there's this thing that just says submit. Doesn't tell you it's a button. Doesn't tell you, it may be, if you're lucky, it'll say it's clickable. Um, we've all heard that one before. So, um, and if you cannot get that to work with your keyboard, then what you need to say, then when you're filing that complaint or filing that review, you want to say, look, you know, I was able to enter, type in all the information. I use a keyboard, I use a screen reader, or even if you don't use a screen reader, um, if you're just a keyboard user, maybe that you may be using magnification, or if you're, you know, somebody that has some vision and has a motor skill difficulty, or just prefers to use the keyboard, you go through that form and you hit the submit button and say, you know, when I press the enter key or press the space bar, that didn't that didn't work, and that's how I submit information um, using, using my technology. You know, if you're on a desktop or if you try to double tap it and it doesn't do anything, um, that's true. I had a there was a situation recently with the Lyft app where maybe some of you experienced this. They fixed it now. But um, they had done something where in the Lyft app where you can add, a, add multiple stops. Um, so you want to add a stop to a ride you're setting up, and what would happen is you tap on the add stop, and then it would pop open the edit box. That was fine. The keyboard would come up. You'd type in whatever it was you wanted to type in, and then you hit the search button, and it wouldn't. And it would bring up the stops, but you couldn't double tap them to act to pick the one you wanted. It wouldn't go through uh, with VoiceOver. Um, that was um, something that. Um, uh, was I, I, I tried to figure out where exactly to go to report that, and luckily they fixed it before I had to. Uh, so, but again, be real clear about what it is, what difficulties you're having, and and don't you don't you don't have to put it in necessarily. You don't have to have you know your techie buddy come over and have explained. Well, I can't click this button because this piece of of code is some doesn't have all the right aria and all this stuff. You don't need to know all that. Just be clear on what you can't do or what you're having difficulty doing and be specific about what issues you're having and uh, if you can <clears throat> describe them in a way that uh, basically makes sense to the person you're talking to where, for example, in, in let's get back to Karen's case. Because I can't open and independently view my pay stub because of this, that, and the other thing that issues that I'm having, uh, that's 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 something people can understand. Um, they don't have to know screen readers. They don't have to know screen magnification, other technology. They just need to know that you, you have difficulty doing something. Obviously, the best thing you can do, if you have the ability to show people what your issues are, to demonstrate for someone what the issues are that you're having, that can someone that can make a difference, that's, that's always the best. If not, 
Um, one of the other things you can do, especially, and it's real easy on iOS to do, is if, uh, I don't know how to do it on Android, can't remember, I think there's, I'm sure there's a way to do it, but if you can take a screenshot, and doing a screenshot is real easy on iOS, because what you can then do is if you have a screen that's giving you some problems, and uh, you are, you, you hit, you hold down your, you hit the home button and the power button if you have a home button on your device. I don't know what you do with some of the newer devices that don't have home buttons on them. So, um, but if you have home button, home and power at the same time, it'll take a screenshot and then that screenshot's in your photo library. You can then um, uh, use that to uh, file your complaint you sh share the screenshot with them. You just attach it to whatever you're sending in or insert it, and then you say, well, this is what it says. It may say, on this may be the checkout screen. This is what I'm hearing. And that there, because of that, it doesn't make, I, I'm unable to figure out exactly how I need to go about putting in my payment information, whatever it is. So that's what I wanted to talk about this afternoon a little bit, just kind of make people feel like, you don't have to be a technology expert to report problems that you're having. If you're just the average user, as I said, it's trying to get stuff done, that's, you can do it. And I'd like to pause and take some just questions or discussion if anybody has any issues they want to talk about with me. Can you go a step farther? So one thing is, I usually have to explain what screen reader means to a lot of companies. Um, and so I do that. I just say it's speech software and, you know, I describe it. But, but um, if they don't know how to make it accessible or um, know what to do, then there's a website you can refer them to, right, that um, gives guidelines and standards? Yes. Um, so can you repeat, do you there, know that? There certainly is. Um, you can go to the, uh, the, the best uh, resource, if you're talking web accessibility, um, the best resource is the World Wide Web, still the World Wide Web Consortium, www.w3c.org. That's one site you can go to, www.w3c.org. Um, it's actually, when you actually, if you, if you bring up like the direct links to the guidelines, it actually goes somewhere else, but uh, I, don't remember, I don't remember that part of it, but you can get to all the stuff from there. The other real good site that I like is, um, the other good site I like is WebAIM, Web Accessibility in Mind. They have all kinds of, of research that they've done and articles on how to make things more, make things more accessible. Um, WebAIM.org. I'm sorry. www.webaim.org. Yeah, they're out of Logan, Utah. They're part of Utah State, I think. And uh, that's a, a real good uh, site. The, the third one you might want to refer to, and I don't remember what the site is, but you can Google it. So if you're having trouble, say, with PDFs, the, the PDF one, the PDF standard is PDF Universal Accessibility, PDF UA. Uh, you can Google that and you can find uh, information on, on that, uh, that standard. And a word about PDFs, and I, and I told somebody this, somebody said, asked me, they said, well, how do you explain to somebody when they send you a PDF? Because they think they're sending you an electronic file, right? And they say, oh, well, it's electronic, of course it's, of course it's gonna be accessible. Well, and we all, we've all been there. We get the scanned image PDF that our screen reader says, alert, empty document. 
Well, um, what what I what I taught people told people to do is basically say say that 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 image is when is the same as when a copier takes a picture of a page and makes a copy of it. It just takes a picture of that page. It doesn't do the optical character recognition. So you basically say all it's doing is making a scan of that page, but it's not recognizing and converting the characters on that page to text. I, I told somebody, I said, that's what you need to do. So, so, so when you, what you tell them is when you're doing the PDF, do the scan, scan the material in, but then do whatever tool you're using, do the optical character recognition and or OCR. Most of these tools that people use, it'll say OCR, and if you can tell them that, that's um, something that'll help as well. So uh, Ray talked about showing things, uh, you know, as a great way of teaching. Um, there's a couple of really great strategies that you can use and all of them are free. So let me um, give you a couple of them. Uh, the first one is, you know, many of you who may have been in meetings uh, throughout this convention so far may have heard of Zoom. Everyone know what Zoom is? Yeah. Okay. Zoom allows you to set up a meeting with yourself. Now you think, well, why would I want to have a meeting with myself? Because you can record yourself, and you can record your screen, and you can rec record your screen reader output. So not only can you show them visually what's happening, but you can show them verbally as well. It's a great teaching tool. And it saves in, in very high quality image, you know, video, and uh, as well as audio. So you can you know, output it in both formats. Now the next thing I'm going to tell you is, is something that we're seeing, which, which may or may not happen, but, if it, but I believe that it will. Um, in iOS 13, you, you, there is an ability in, in iOS today where you can record a screen video, so you can demo, yeah, screen record. But the problem with it today in iOS 12 is it does not record voiceover speech. That's changing in iOS 13. So this will again allow you to do this both on mobile and on desktop. So these are some other really great tools for you to be able to use to be able to teach you know, your IT staff. Because really, they just need to be shown. You know, it's, it, it's, it's really that simple. Once the, once the light bulb goes on, they're like, oh, and you know, most of these problems are so simple to fix. You know, labeling an image, fixing a keyboard issue. Most of the time, they're very, very simple to fix. There are occasions where they're not, but for the most part, they're pretty simple to do. Thanks. Um, Ray, isn't it? My name is Dana, and I'm hey, Dana. super excited to be here. This is my very first time at ACB. Welcome. Thank you. It's my first session, too. So, um, But I think, Ray, you said you worked for United. I sure do. Awesome, because I work for Delta, and I think we should be best friends. So, well, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> oh, come on. Well, 
I love you either way. I would like to talk to you, though. That, that well, I have a question, though. I think from a transportation perspective, a lot of airlines and, and large organizations, they think of their .com and what their website looks like. And obviously, I think as organizations, we have a long way to go when it comes to accessibility of our apps. So maybe this maybe is geared toward Ray, but also others in the room. I would be curious what type of, when I think of apps that are truly accessible, which ones stand out as these are shining stars, these are the ones that we should, we should look to? And I know when I think of Lyft, it varies so differently from an airline app, but um, not to try to gear it toward transportation, but I know that's been such a, a huge focus, I know, for a lot of airlines and a lot of organizations. Actually, it's interesting you're asking this because one of the things that we're doing at United is actually about we're undergoing a complete redesign of our app, which is going to include making it accessible. Um, I think what happened, just if I might digress for a second, I think what happened with the airlines was that, you know, they, they, they got the mandate for dot-com and kiosk, and then there's like this whole world of apps out there, and I think for a while a lot of them were saying, and maybe some still are, well, that's not mandated, so we don't have to do that. And uh, uh, I'm pleased that United seems to be taking a little different approach there. So I think what I would, I would say that the, it, it doesn't, Say an Uber or a Lyft app. Yeah, it's so different from the airlines. But I think what I would say to people is, what are the things that make it accessible? The things are that when I find an icon, I know what it what it means. Where what what it's you know it's it's labeled. You know, there's a the buttons are labeled. So when I touch a button, I know what that button is going to do. When I come to a text box or a, 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 another control of some sort. Um, I know what the purpose of that control is because it's labeled. It tells me when I land on it. It tells me. I think if you can do that kind of thing, that's, that, that's information that can be related to whatever apps we're talking about, whether it's um, uh, an Uber or a Lyft or other, air, other types of apps, uh, airlines. I would say this. I think I would... If you if you can, I would talk about mainstream apps that are accessible because people know what those are. Um, not everybody, maybe for example, knows Money Reader, uh, but you know we all do, and many of us do because we use it. DoorDashes of the world. Um, I won't say Grubhub. Um, they've got a long. They've got some work to do. Anyway, just the basic things about that particular app. What makes it an accessible app? I think are good things to. Uh, to share. I recently used the Alaska Airlines app and found it to be remarkably accessible. It's not perfect. There are um, some graphics that get used as buttons, that, um, but you can figure out what they are by the name of the graphics. So um, Alaska Air, if you're looking for, a, for an example, an exemplar, I would look to Alaska. It's not perfect, but it's a good one. Also add a, a little bit of guidance for your technical people. Um, there's, there's a lot of emphasis now in the tech space to make cross-platform apps, apps that run, you know, you write it once, you've got the JavaScript logic, it runs on Android, it runs on. Uh, those are commonly either um, embedded web apps or they're using React Native. Um, yep. Both of those have significant accessibility challenges. 
you save money on the one hand by you know, having something that you can update without having to go through the app store and get approval for, but you have those, those downsides. Um, Amazon uses React Native in some of our apps. We are in the process of working with Facebook to improve the React Native accessibility framework. Um, please push anyone using React Native in your company to move to React.60 or later because that's where the accessibility fixes are starting to land. Yeah, and a couple other things I would say too is uh, in the iOS space, there's a lot of a lot of the developments done in Swift, and in the Android, I'm hearing about Kotlin, C-O-T-L-I-N. And again, you don't need necessarily know what these things are, um, but that's the that you know those those are the kinds of uh, code platforms that they are being used, and um, there are organizations out there uh, like. Um, like level access, for example, that have, that perhaps would have materials that can be shared as to how to uh, make some of those kinds of things accessible. There's a whole other area that we could have gone into, which is uh, websites that are being built mobile responsive, where you know the desktop version of it might be accessible when when it hits a mobile screen, the accessibility doesn't carry over. That's a big. That's another challenge because. You have to, again, hopefully some of the things like what Jeff was talking about with iOS 13 and that are going to help that because then you can re really record what your experience was on that website so that they say, well, you know, we designed it to be accessible. And you can say, but it didn't work on my mobile device. And so that's a case where some they didn't test it fully or wasn't tested fully on mobile. So... Um, a, another note for uh, folks who aren't blind but need things like large print or mm -hmm. high contrast, again, um, web-based or particularly embedded web or React, they are not up for that challenge yet, right? If I choose a large font theme uh, in iOS, those reactive apps are not reacting to those settings yet. It makes you wonder why they chose that name. Um, but those are also on the, the roadmap to, to get fixed. Very delayed but, reaction. But lots of, lot, yes, well. <laughs> um, but those, those are all things to keep in mind. It, it really matters what user interface libraries yeah. you choose. If you can go native iOS, go native Android, that's always the best choice. Uh, but there are often business reasons that take you away from that. Yeah, and I think, un and unfortunately, sometimes a lot of times, you know, the average user maybe doesn't know uh, that kind of thing, which is why we're talking to all of you here, so that you can ask those kind of you can ask those kind of questions and get that out there. But I just wanted to mention two quick things. Um, one is so it's not really a question, but one is the that often when things are much more accessible to us, it makes it better for everyone else. Absolutely, and. Because years ago, I had a huge meltdown when I was in graduate school because the course that I had just started taking, I was seriously ready to quit. And But someone intervened, and they fixed the website. And that night, someone said to me, I don't know what happened on that website, but... And then she went on and on and on. And I said, well, you can thank my meltdown and JAWS for that one because somebody fixed it. <laughs> so it was better for everyone. And then about, about, one other comment about... When people can see things that happen. Okay. Um, we have a new website 
um, that we're all supposed to be using at our church for scheduling, and it is horrible. It is horrible. I can do a lot of it, but then, so I went to my neighbor who is, um, that's his work, he does computer stuff, and um, and he said, well, all you have to do is blah, 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 and I said, I know, and so we started doing it together, and he immediately saw, you know, what worked and what didn't, and so your suggestion about using Zoom to me seems like such a good one because people would be able to see it. Brian's mentioned a number of things that, you know, the committee have been working on. Um, I'm interested to know specifically in relation to airline with an S, um, touchscreen um, seat backs where everything including the call button is a touchscreen. And what exactly can we expect to happen in the near future with that? Well, Susan, my dear, I can only speak for United, um, although I think some other airlines are starting to move into this space. Um, just recently, uh, United deployed in the seatback entertainment space, uh, the seatback screens, um, and if you're in like the real high-priced cabins, you can get these handheld remote controls which I enjoyed playing with when I was testing them because guys like remote controls. Um, <clears throat> and so, um, uh, anyways, this we have deployed an IFE system that is it's Android based and it is the mo by far the most accessible in-flight entertainment system out there. Uh, what we have done, and I'm trying to remember how you. So, if you're on United, I'm trying to remember how you bring this up. But there is a way that you can. The, the, the our flight crews are supposed to be trained, and again, I know how that goes to show you how to bring that up. But it is. It, I will tell you, it's completely accessible. You can. You. You. It's. It's Android based. You use your talk back gestures. You can swipe across and double tap on things and. Uh, menus, whether you want to watch TV shows, movies, a podcast, listen to podcasts, any of that stuff, um, you can you can do it on our system. Now, I don't know what other airlines are for sure are doing. Maybe our friend Dana has some, and, and Brian's asking about kiosks. Now, all of the airlines are required by, I think it's 2022, to have 25% of their airport kiosks accessible. And... Um, I can tell you that many of the ones that United has deployed are have the accessibility built in. It's it's kind of like the ATM, you know, where you plug in your headphone and the uh, voice comes on, and then there's a there's a keyboard that's got you know up and down arrow keys and different things like that on it. Um, now, one of the issues there, and it always is, is training. Uh, in fact, I was at a in a um, at a meeting at work um, and. Uh, last October, and some of our uh, uh, airport ops people said, "Oh, we have accessible kiosks. We didn't. We didn't know. We thought that one kiosk was broken." And it's, yeah, it actually said that. So we that was a good education. So again, it's it's a lot of it's in the training and you know stuff like that. But I can tell you, United is doing some has done some great work. We won the Crystal Cabin Award for our entertainment uh, accessibility. Um, now. This is different than personal device entertainment, which we also offer. That has some room for improvement. Uh, that's where you can get it on your device, and that's got room for improvement. We know that. I can't say a whole lot, but uh, there are some, stay tuned, there are some things coming. So there is work going on in that space. Uh, thank you, Ray, for that presentation. Appreciate it very much.
So now we're going to move on uh, to another company. And again, keep in mind, my interest is to try to reward those who listen to us by giving them a chance to speak with us. Uh, and Marty is such an individual. Those who have been involved with uh, playing anything from blindfold games know that it started, you know, with just a little idea, and then it blossomed and blossomed and blossomed some more until there are now, what, around 50? 81. Oh, pardon me, 81. God, I read the wrong, wrong page. 81 such games out there. And they're all on Jeff's phone here, so he's got a lot more time to play games than I do. No, I didn't say that. Uh-huh. Anyway, nonetheless, uh, you know, nothing stays still. So Marty wasn't satisfied with just doing games and started creating some interesting utilities. And... Uh, to expand his company. It used to be Marty was the company, you know. I am Egypt, you know, that kind of thing. Well, he's now part of a team of 10. Are we talking potential for expansion? Yep, and a second round of, of funding is being sought to expand yet again. So I want to turn it over to Marty, who is going to tell us all about what's new at Blindfold Games, etc. Marty, Thank it's you. yours. Thank you. Thank you. So I assume everyone here... Thank you. I assume everyone here has hold, heard of Blindfold Games. Okay, well, it, it got its real launch separate from me doing this as a STEM project to kind of teach um, fourth, fifth, and sixth graders how to build an app, which started Wish to Listen. If any of you have heard my podcasts that have been on multiple times, it has a story unto itself. But after we finished uh, Blindfold Racer, uh, I got an email from Brian um, saying, the next time you're up in Boston, because I had commute back and forth between Boston and Miami for some of the companies I was still on the board of up in Boston. He said, next time you're in the area, could you stop by um, the Carroll Center? I'd like to sp speak to you face-to-face. -face. That's great. So I happened to be in Boston. This is back in 2012. And he says, um, I'm not going to be in the office today. Do you mind coming by my house? I live about a block and a half from the, uh, the Perkins School. I said, okay. So I drive over, get to his house, knock on the door. And then waiting for me there are four people and their guide dogs. Mind you, this is the first time in my life I have interacted with somebody with a guide dog. And I, I walk in, you know, all the dogs are nice and everyone's kind of sitting around and it's, it's Kim and Brian and Judy and Doug. Um, and they, they told me they had been up like almost all night playing blindfold races so they could tell me what they liked and what they didn't like about the game. <laughs> and at that meeting, um, and I probably spent four or five hours there. They kind of told me what made a game fun, uh, what I should avoid in games, and I think uh, Judy asked me for a 9 by 9 Sudoku game at that point. Uh, Kim asked me for um, a Solitaire game, and I think Brian asked me, for, I think you asked me for a Cryptogram game. Yes. Okay. And those were the first three games I went back and, and did. And so, like, since I was semi-retired, I was like popping out a game every month, and then I started... Then when the um, blindfold race had jumped to the top of the accessibility games list on the App Store, I started hearing from people all across the world. So over the course of four or five years, uh, I think Blindfold Racer has been downloaded 57,000 times. Games in total have been downloaded over a half million times. That's like back in January or so this year. I published about 80 different games. And um, I'm probably the person responsible for more visually impaired people wasting time than anybody else in the world. 
is separate from the games being used for educational purposes, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, two of the games actually have fallen more into the category of utilities than entertainment. And the first one started by me uh, about three years ago listening to the fireworks on a July 4th or maybe four years ago. And I realized that fireworks are as interesting to listen to as to hear. So I quickly whip up a little uh, app that I put out there called Blindfold Fireworks and people are playing with it. And then somebody says, hey, can you take that, that, the sound effects in fireworks and combine it with other sound effects and make the equivalent of an, an e-card app but instead of sending out videos that have an audio description of it saying, you know, cute little dog in the middle of the field, but actually let people be able to select from a collection of sound effects and put together their own audio e-card and let people be able to send this e-card via common methods, be it posted on Facebook, send it to email, or text it, or up on Twitter. So I found a collection of about 300 audio um, sound effects. I think the first version went out there where you basically pick a sound effect, record your audio, it packages it up together, and then you stores it up in the cloud and sends it out somewhere. That was pretty popular, and then I actually uh, had some people say they don't want to record their own voice, they want to do their own, um, they want the system to automatically turn their voice into speech. Um, so thanks to some of the Amazon um, Poly speech services, we let you pick kind of what voice you want to go out in, what accent, what language, and it'll kind of package it up and, and send it out, and, and you can send that MP3 file to somebody else that they listen to. So that was the first utility we did. And then um, I actually have a group of about 50 testers uh, who are uh, completely blind worldwide who give me feedback on the games. Whenever I produce a game, uh, inevitably, I get everything wrong, and through a process of refinement over about the course of two to three months, it, it turns into something really good. And one of them wrote to me saying, I was out for a stroll with my guide dog, and another dog got into a fight with a guide dog, and they started running around me, and she ended up falling down. Her dog got hurt a little, and she got hurt a little. And she said, wouldn't it be uh, really cool if you could build an app that, instead of me trying to putz with my Apple iPhone, and bring up the video to record what's going on. Can you do something that as soon as you start this app, it starts recording video out of the, the back camera? So, so in these stressful situations, I can just launch the app and it records everything. And I thought, that doesn't sound all that hard. That's a good idea. So it took about two or three weeks to build out the app and I put it out there. And I started getting all sorts of suggestions from people about how to make the app better implemented those and put it out, I think about two years ago, and I think about three or 4,000 people are downloading this completely free app as a way to deal with highly stressful situations, as a way to deal with situations where services are denied, which gets back to uh, the equal access concepts and, and look at things. And now I, I've, I haven't taken the next step, which is to partner with one of the organizations to promote it, but it probably makes sense at some point to, to look into that, which is here we have an, a completely free app that if you're in a situation where you're being denied service, to be able to record that and then start the process to make sure that organization doesn't repeat that bad behavior. I think that's what, I, you know, I think that's what happened to Uber, not through this app, but seeing enough complaints about it. So that's kind of the utility things we've been doing. We have a number of apps that we've built that, are, that are, were specifically designed to teach assistive technology gestures. Um, and, and I know, Kim, you, love, you told me you love this one. 
which is it starts, it's like the game My Simon or Simon Says, um, where it starts out very simply and you basically says, tap the screen and you tap it. And then it proceeds to get faster and faster giving you instructions. And if you go through all levels of this game, starting with tapping and swiping, it works up that you have to practice doing everything to teach the, to, to know how to use the rotor. And that game amongst, and that's called blindfold bop gesture. So it starts say tap, swipe up, swipe down, swipe up, swipe up, swipe down. It gets faster and faster and faster. And, I, and like Blindfold Racer, I used my uh, daughter's voice on that one as well as uh, because it's the expression and the emotion that she puts into it that makes it successful. And, and if you listen to Blindfold Racer and her voice there, and you listen to, to Blindfold Bop Gesture, you actually hear the difference between a 12-year-old girl and an obnoxious 17-year-old teenager. <laughs> so what led me down the path I'm on right now where we've evolved blindfold games into objective ed is talking to a lot of the heads of the schools for the blind, talking to a lot of the people who run the lighthouses across the country, talking to people like Kim and Brian um, in, and Judy in understanding that the education uh, that uh, visually impaired kids are giving in school, especially in the pre-K through th third grade years, th they're at a significant disadvantage to their sighted peers. And when I start hearing from teachers of visually impaired students and orientation and mobility specialists saying, we're already using some of your blindfold games to solve that, I realized that we could make a significant difference in the community for that because we come from a unique background. And my specific background is I'm a serial software entrepreneur. I've started about five different companies, took one of them public, successfully sold the others, and I'm at a point in my life where I can give back to a community. So one of those companies we built along the way was a company that uh, automated the, proce of the process of the IEP. It did uh, special education management. Does everyone, do people know what an IEP is? Okay. So we were the biggest vendor in Massachusetts and Texas. And we ended up selling that company about three years ago. So the team I had worked with, I was one of the co-founders, the team I had worked with and, um, had a lot of experience in special education. I, through this hobby, had a lot of experience in building accessible audio games. We realized there's a need in designing gamified education for visually impaired students uh, pre-K through 12th grade and we could take all this together and launch a new company, which is what we did. It's called Objective Ed. And we raised our, our kind of our seed round last summer and about to raise um, a, a Series A round this coming summer where we're building gamified education using off-the-shelf technology like the iPad um, to teach through games all the skills in the expanded core curriculum. So whether it's a, a sensory efficiency skill, whether it's an ad adaptive skill, whether it's uh, early braille literacy, we're coming out with games in each of these areas. And to date, um, we've so far we've built out about eight games. Over the next month or two, we'll be announcing some major distribution deals, some major grants we've won, uh, some major prizes. One of the innovations we actually came up with uh, was where we take a sheet of braille text on a, pa on a standard piece of paper you put that on the iPad, and the iPad knows what's on that sheet of Braille. No way. Yes way. Okay. <laughs> and 
the, the way it does it is, is, and we apply for patent and all for this, but what's interesting here is, if you think about Braille, it's, it's a fixed size cell, a character size, which means you know what's in the upper left corner is gonna be the first piece of first letter Braille on that page. And you know three positions over that is gonna be the fourth letter. Well, if you know what was on that piece of paper, and you know which piece of paper, which Braille sheet you're putting on the iPad, and you can make that correspondence, the iPad now has the intelligence to know what's on that sheet of Braille. And when we started prototyping this for the, uh, for the Touch of Genius Award, Louis Braille Touch of Genius Award, we said, how thick can the paper be that you put on an iPad to still feel your finger press? So we figured, let's try it. So we took a standard loose-leaf piece of paper. It worked. We took three sheets of paper together. It worked. We took a business card. It worked. We took two business cards. It worked some of the time. Now, what we found out is a, the, a sheet of Braille is usually embossed on an 80-pound piece of paper and sometimes on a 120-pound paper. Since, we were, since both of those are thinner than, a bit, than two business cards, everything was working. The way the system works is you enter the, the text that you want to put on the sheet of Braille into our web dashboard, and then we assign that sheet of Braille a number. You print it out on either a Perkins Braille, or you type it, we show you on the screen, which is accessible, what it should be, or simply print the, the uh, BRF file on any sort of um, Braille embosser, and stick it on the iPad, and at that point you know. And from that, we've built a bunch of games. So let's say you're a teacher, and you're teaching you're teaching a child contractions, and the child really loves horses, and, and let's say you're in Boston. So you write a short story about horses, and then and you have the, the, this braille sheet printed out, and then you include a number of questions. The child goes home, puts that sheet of braille on their iPad, and they read it, and then they, they ask them the first question, which is, where does the horse sleep at night? The child reads through the braille story, finds the word barn and double taps the screen. Of course, in this case, barn is contracted because of the AR contraction. It dings a couple of times, it gets points, and it moves ahead. So not only are we creating braille sheets such as consonant, vowel, consonant uh, word sheets or sight words or any other common things, we're letting teachers create their own braille sheets to work specifically with their kids. Well. When I told this idea to uh, Diane Browner, who writes for Perkins Path of Technologies, and Penny Rosenblum, who is at the University of Arizona, she said, Marty, you're missing the big picture. I said, what do you mean? She said, it's all good and well that teachers can create their own sheets, but why don't you let teachers share sheets with each other? So we added to our infrastructure the ability that once you create a Braille sheet with the corresponding audio questions, you can put it up in our cloud-based repository. Now consider the teacher in Seattle, and he has a boy who's also visually impaired, also loves horses, and is also learning those type of contractions. He can download that Braille sheet, print it out, pick his own audio questions or other audio questions, and now he, without having to create any lesson content, can be teaching, uh, giving the kid a story, uh, thing to play at home. Hmm. Now, we've done a, a couple of Braille sheet games as well, such as Word Hunt and Hangman, and we're coming out with more and more Braille sheet games, all designed around the concept of teachers being able to create their own content 
and share content with all the other teachers. And we've built a professional network around this. So if you think of LinkedIn as a professional network where you're job seeking, here we built a professional network where teachers can put up content, share content with others, comment on their content, and help, out, help each other out. Now this, the same way we're doing lesson content sharing for Braille Sheets, we have a whole game infrastructure that we're building for the orientation mobility games or any parts of the expanded core curriculum or any parts of um, core curriculum like um, a spelling or uh, science or math. So let's say you build out a Jeopardy game and you put, and let's say there's a history Jeopardy game and a teacher comes up with these questions. They have a, an objective at Jeopardy game that they're playing. They pull down content for say six, some sort of sixth grade geography thing and they pull it out, they create the, the questions and answers, and then once they're done, they, have it with, they work with their kid, they can now store their, their questions and, and Jeopardy answers up in the, up in the repository. So, and, and um, if you're working with, say, Objective Ed's Barnyard game and you've defined different skill levels, because Barnyard, if you're familiar with Blindfold Barnyard, is really a matter of finding an animal on the screen through clock directions and then dragging you to a fence through compass directions. That game, Objective Ed Barnyard now, has 40 different skill levels that will take a child from simple laterality, left, right, all the way through the clock and compass directions up to touch and drag concepts. Um, teachers can tailor any of those levels and then share them with any of the other teachers on the network. So, yes, um, let me bring the mic over to you. I should probably wait till you're done. I'm oh, sorry. So, I'm wondering if there's implications for this for blind parents and grandparents to, I was just thinking about how I helped my granddaughter with spelling words the other day and she had to read them to me first so I could write them down so I could quiz her on them. So could parents work with uh, sighted children's teachers to get into, have application of this? Um, I haven't really looked at any of these things in terms of sighted uh, parents working with sighted children for this type of stuff because there's so much stuff that's already out there. Um, however, one of the key things when working with a visually impaired child if you're a sighted parent is for one, you probably don't know Braille and secondly, you don't really know all the things your orientation and mobility specialists know to work with it, which is why for every one of these games that we've built, um, we want the games to be sufficiently motivating and almost addicting that the child can play on his own, but the parent, the parent can go to the web dashboard, which is an accessible dashboard, and actually see the child gaining skills. Now what I learned when I was talking to Diane and Penny and, and many other teachers of visually impaired students and orientation mobility specialists is when they're teaching a child a skill, they only see this child about once a week, maybe twice a week, and in places like North Dakota, once a month. Um, which means the child didn't get much of a chance to practice that skill because the child doesn't practice when the teacher's not around. The parent doesn't know how to help them practice. Their regular ed teacher doesn't know much about what they're supposed to be doing. She's too busy with the other students. The paraprofessional doesn't know. Because our games are so motivating, the kids practice when they're not, around, when they're not with their TVI or their O&M. So the kid is actually making progress week over week, which means they're acquiring these ECC skills sooner they're achieving the literacy goals and, and education sooner and achieving independence sooner. So that's kind of where we're coming and um, what we're working on. So to date, we, um, 
I've been kind of going out to all these AER conferences and, and other O&M conferences for the past year. It's like every week I'm at a different conference. I think I've worked my way up to Platinum Pro on American. And we have about uh, 700 or so teachers who want to participate in our pilots, which started this summer. We're actually going through three levels of pilots, and we hope to actually start distributing um, the curriculum, and this whole gamified curriculum in September, and we're kind of right on track on that. Um, so that's what we've been up to. Um, and while a lot of these uh, games are really focused on pre-K through 12th grade students, all based around their individual educational plan, uh, we're getting a lot of requests from visual rehabilitation therapists and others that want to use these with adults who are either just are newly blind and they need to reacquire certain skills. And through gaming, we make it a lot of fun. Um, it's unlikely that adults over 40 will take the time to learn Braille, but that option is there. Um, another invention that, that, we're do, that we're working on is people, uh, and, and this was really came out of a conversation with, with Kirk Adams and a few other people um, out at CSUN where we were given the uh, Touch of Genius Award. We noticed that uh, from everything we learned, when a student is learning Braille and learning how to read and they're first using their Braille display, they usually have a teacher with them correcting them when they make a mistake as they read the Braille. So basically the student is reading and speaks aloud and the teacher checks what they're doing. And we thought, I wonder whether we could come up with a way that the student can do these same type of activities within the context of a game and not always need the teacher there. And we thought, why don't we use speech recognition? We could basically send the line of text the dog sniffed at the cat to the braille display. The student, as she reads it, reads the dog sniffed the cat. If the student speaks it correctly, we know the child read that, line, that braille line correctly. If the student speaks something else, we know which word they got wrong because we're converting their speech back to text, we're comparing it, and then we know what else to feed them. So we're kind of using speech recognition AI to help students progress in their Braille faster to improve their literacy. And the other thing we're doing is we're collecting all this data. As students play any of the games, the, Bra the Braille literacy games, the orientation mobility games, the assistive technology games, we're saving anonymized every piece of data about their game playing experience and their success. There are about 60,000 students across the United States who are visually impaired. Let's say we have 10,000, 20,000 students over a few years start to use our system. Over the course of five or ten years, we will have an immense amount of data of what methods work to teach certain skills and what methods don't work. Whether the student is developmentally normal, whether the student is developmentally behind, okay, we will be able to ascertain through machine learning the best practices for teaching certain skills. So, we, we see that as part of our future. The other thing, if you think about our professional network, one of the biggest problems that every single state across this country, every single school for the blind, is there is a shortage of TVIs and O&Ms. Very few new ones are coming out. Those new ones don't have a lot of experience. And there's a lot retiring at the other end. Well, here we have a professional network where people are putting up content. Well, I don't know if this will happen, but it would be a nice result 
which is the same way people comment to each other on some of these Facebook groups and some of these LinkedIn groups, if we can establish a way where some of the people who are very experienced teachers can start mentoring online with some of the younger teachers coming out, these younger teachers would be able to achieve um, much better results with their students more quickly. So that's kind of what I've been up to. You know, that's how I spent my summer. This is more of a comment. So my wife makes personal handmade greeting cards, which I can't compete with when it comes to anniversaries and birthdays and things. So I've used your blindfold greeting app to create personal audio messages, and she just loves it, and it makes a big difference. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Just wonder where I can get a list of all of the games you're making available. I want to also comment on your instant recorder denial of service app. You need to come talk to me. I'm the president of Guide Dog Users Incorporated, and we would love to partner with you. And we have about a, thousands of Guide Dog users who would love that app. Um, and the final thing, have you talked to OSEP, the Office of Special Education Programs? Because they need to know about the data you're collecting. It's phenomenal. So thank you so much. Thank you. Um, uh, there are three things you brought up. Firstly, uh, if you visit for the Blindfold Games, blindfoldgames.org. I have a two-line description for every one of those games. Blindfoldgames.org. Um, the second question was about um, the blindfold video. Okay, um, That's up there as well. Now, since you're guide dog with the blinds, one of the um, games that people had been bugging me about to build for the longest time is a blindfold version of a Tamaguchi. If you remember that from the 1970s and I think 1990s. And I decided as an audio game that would be really boring. But there are so many really cool sound effects of dogs in a public domain on the net. So I spent, you know, for about three years ago I collected all the dog sounds and then I think about a year ago I started on Blindfold Doggy. And Blindfold Doggy is an app where you have to take care of a virtual dog. And then you have to take it, you have to bring it out to, to pee and poop, you have to feed it, you have to play with it, you have to throw toys. And then in a more advanced version, you act, the, every time you do something good, you get virtual coins and points, and then you have to go to the, into town and take your dog for a walk. And if you, get, if you want to go away on vacation for a while, you can put your dog into a kennel and pay for the kennel. But that game is a lot of fun. And the cool part about that game is it's not the type of game you play continuously. You have your phone, you're playing the game, and then you say, okay, I gotta, you know, have to do some things around the house. But if your dog has to go out, it's going to send you a note, notifications. You know, your phone's going to be notifying you saying, you know, your little dog Rover needs to pee, okay, because it's been about four hours. So we have that, but I'd be glad to work with you guys, on, with guide dogs, um, to do this for two purposes. One, let people know about it. More importantly, if people are thinking about getting a guide dog, they better know what they're in for. <laughs> and your, your last thing, I, um, I had a conversation with like four different people over at um, uh, DOE and different uh, uh, things in DOE, including OSE, about things, and they showed us slews of grants we can go for, um, but right now we're only 10 people, and to go for one of those grants, uh, we'll need a grant writer, we'll need to uh, participate with a couple universities on that. Um, we are, have already been um, contacted by some people at NCCU, I don't know if any of you people know Sean Tecum or uh, William Weil, and, uh, and of course Penny Rosenblum, and they're all going to be launching studies with us to prove on the efficacy of the games. Like Brian said, I don't want to just be a talking head, so if you have ideas 
ideas or suggestions or anything we should be doing, let me know. Because everything that you've heard here came out of the ideas of other people. Main Menu is a program brought to you by the American Council of the Blind and ACB Radio. It airs every Friday evening beginning at 9 p.m. Eastern on ACB Radio Mainstream and repeats various times throughout the week. To listen and for a complete schedule, go to acbradio.org mainstream. You can also listen using the ACB Link app for Android and iOS, grab it as a podcast, or call 605-475-8130. If you are interested in submitting your own content or you have comments or suggestions, feel free to email us, mainmenu at acbradio.org. You can also find us on Twitter at Main Menu. Please note that airing of any content is subject to approval by the Main Menu team. We're so happy you could join us, and we look forward to being with you next time. Thank you. Thank you.